bursting on the scene almost around 2700 BC with very elaborate uh, urbanism, town planning, uh, civic development, uh, extensive administration, writing and so on. And this lasts from around 2700 BC right up to 1900 BC. And at 1900 BC, BC we find that the Indus Valley civilization almost disappears. And if you go by the conventional history books and the present textbooks, you have no continuity between that Indus Valley civilization and the later Indian civilization, which reappears uh, almost 1,000 years later, or 1,200 years later, in the Ganges Valley. So there is a huge gap of more than a millennium between those two civilizations. And that gap is still called in conventional scholarship the so-called Vedic Night. Why is it called the Vedic Night? Because we are told, if you study the, the, the textbooks and conventional history books, we are told that the Aryans invaded India towards the end of the Harappan civilization. And they brought their own separate culture, which was absolutely not connected with the Indus Valley culture. They brought Sanskrit, they brought the Vedas, and this is what after a millennium re-emerged in the Ganges uh, cities and the early historical kingdoms. This is the conventional story. And therefore, according to that conventional story, the Harappan civilization is a kind of island in time and space which has basically nothing to do with Indian civilization. In fact, there is a French scholar, his name is Bernard Ferzon, who wrote recently a huge book which is now referenced in France, it's called uh, La Genèse de la Genesis of India. And he writes, the Harappan civilization is not the origin of Indian civilization. So, this whole dogma, if I may say so, is entirely caused by this, uh, uh, you know, uh, Aryan invasion theory, which involves a total break in the history of India sometime after the collapse of the Harappan civilization. This is the conventional approach. Apart from all kinds of arguments specifically connected with the uh, Aryan invasion theory, into which I will not go now, we have a very major problem because if we go into all aspects of the Indus Valley civilization one by one, and this is what I'm going to present tonight, you find that actually there is a very massive evidence of continuity at every step. And we find that, in fact, the Harappan civilization is nothing but an early stage of Indian civilization. So, briefly, to summarize the context before we start the slides, because I am the best way to illustrate this continuity, uh, uh, you know, what we have called our Harappan heritage, the best way to illustrate this is through, through photographs, which I have collected from a number of sources, um, American archaeologists, Indian archaeologists, French archaeologists, and various books. I have put all this together, and I hope to publish it sometime in a book form. And I may say as an aside that I have presented this um, a similar slideshow in various places in India, including at conferences of archaeologists and historians, and uh, uh, they have, you know, given positive uh, uh, comments on this, so I have been refining it all along, 
But basically it has been broadly accepted by present archaeologists uh, in India. This was last December in Tripunitra in Kerala. So, to give the full context very briefly, the Aryan invasion theory, you can take it from four angles. One angle is the archaeolo- purely archaeological angle. If you imagine an Aryan people entering India around 1500 BC according to the conventional scenario, it would be expected to leave traces of its arrival in India in the form of clearly distinct artifacts and um, uh, uh, different types of pottery, different types of writing, different types of, you know, whatever a culture, a material culture involves. So this is the archaeological angle and there is complete failure on this front of the uh, Aryan invasion theory because there is absolutely not a sign around that period of any new type of artifact emerging from Indian soil. Second angle is anthropological. If we have an Aryan people coming into India, you would expect a sudden change in human type, and that could be detected through a careful analysis of the skeletons. There have been many studies by Indian as well as American um, archaeobiologists, as they are sometimes called, many studies which have examined hundreds of skeletons found in the Indus Valley cities, in the Ganges cities, and south also, and those studies have concluded, there have been uh, several famous archaeologists, one of them is, uh, for example, Kenneth Kennedy of Cornell University, and they have found absolutely no sign of discontinuity in the demographic record. So therefore, the skeletons show that there is a continuous evolution in human times within India, but between, and precisely between 6000 BC and 800 BC, there is no continuity. It's a, it's a big, no discontinuity, excuse me. It's a big sign of time, and there is no sign of arrival of a new people. So that is the second angle, and there also the Aryan invasion theory fails. The third angle is literally. Literally because if a people come into India and ask them to bring us the Rig Veda, and Sanskrit as a language, we would expect that they have retained in their earliest writings, or earliest texts rather, because writing, strictly speaking, did not exist then, we would expect that they would have kept in those early texts a clear memory of their arrival in India, their so-called conquest of the indigenous people and so on. We find nothing of the sort. There is nowhere in the Rig Veda or elsewhere a clear memory of having come from outside India. Quite the contrary, quite the contrary, at every point of time, the geography described is the geography of India, and especially in the Rig Veda, the geography of the Northwest, the Punjab, the, seven, the land of the seven rivers, and so on. So, that is the third angle which I'm briefly summarizing here, on which the Aryan invasion theory fails. And the fourth angle is the topic of the, the talk tonight, that is the cultural angle. Why cultural? Because in this, this whole Aryan theory is actually a theory concocted by colonial powers as we all know now, but the first of it was that what we call Indian culture, or call it Hinduism, or call it whatever you like, is basically an import. 
into India and it came through the Aryans because they brought the Vedas and, and so on and so forth. So again, a total discontinuity between the Harappan culture on the one hand and this Aryan culture or Vedic culture which is supposed to have come from outside. So therefore the big question is, do we find on the ground such a cultural discontinuity or not? And I hope to uh, uh, convince or argue at least to show tonight that there is not at all any such cultural discontinuity between the Harappan culture and later Indian culture. There are of course evolutions all the time and, and uh, Indian culture, Indian civilization was never static but I hope to show that many of the features of Indian culture of today and in particular of Hinduism of today can be easily traced to uh, Harappan culture. So this is very briefly the background and uh, let me simply emphasize before we start the, the slides that uh, you will not find even one person today of archaeologists who have worked in the Harappan site ready to, to, to defend uh, the Aryan invasion theory. None of them agrees with it because of the absence of any such record on the ground and therefore it is a kind of paradox that it is here in India that we still keep this theory alive in the textbooks for example if you see that you please buy any textbook on Mount Road tomorrow and see what the children from standard uh, 6 to 11 have to study about the origin of, of uh, Indian civilization and you will see that this Aryan theory, uh, invasion theory is still there as a kind of dogma which is repeated without any evidence to support it. So there is a time lag in India between you know the discoveries uh, in the field by experts of all kinds whether they are archaeologists, biologists and so on and the textbooks and I estimate personally that the timeline is something like 30 to 40 years. So we may have to wait for 5 to 10 years before you know all this new knowledge which I will uh, show now finds its way into the, the textbooks and that's very regrettable because we, we find that Indian children are still uh, brainwashed by unnecessarily divisive uh, theories which were perhaps justified in the 19th century but which have no justification whatsoever uh, in today's 21st century. So with this brief background I will start but I'll just point out before that basically the type of evidence I bring before you is twofold. One type is whatever shows clear continuity between the Harappan culture and today's Indian culture, that is one. Secondly, whatever can be clearly related from the Harappan culture to Vedic culture, that is elements from the Rig Veda, because that is something which appears regularly in the Harappan world. So these two things are, are two uh, 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 lines that totally contradict the Aryan invasion theory and that is what I will now uh, show before you and will briefly cover all aspects of uh, Harappan life, let us say, the, the life of the Harappan, daily Harappan society. Keep in mind that this is just a little bit of what we could show, the, the slideshow could easily be three, four times longer and keep in mind also please that these evidences come to us from no more than one percent of the Harappan site because there are approximately 2,600 
Harappan sites uh, uh, listed by archaeologists today. Out of these 2,600 sites which cover uh, the whole of Pakistan, part of Afghanistan, the whole of Rajasthan, the whole of Gujarat, part of Maharashtra, part of Uttar Pradesh, the whole of Aryana, out of all these 2,600 sites, no more than 1-2% to have been excavated today. No more than 1-2%. to So 98% minimum remains unexcavated. Number one. Number two, even the excavations that have taken place, most of them are very partial. It's only a few uh, Harappan cities that have been extensively excavated, like Mohanjodaro, like Harappa, or in India, Kalibangam, uh, Dhonavira. I will show this on the map now. So, you know, uh, we are working with a tiny fraction of the evidence, but what I can say is that the more comes to light, and the more this continuity which I will now illustrate is confirmed from year to year. So, with this, we can start the, the, the slides, please. And first a few words about about town planning. In fact, we can't, uh, it's not really about town planning, it's about astronomy. Why astronomy? Because there is a very curious phenomenon which a few Western astronomers have pointed out. And this phenomenon is that, this is the city, the upper city, not the whole, the upper city of Mohanjo-Daro, which is called the citadel technically by archaeologists, and you find here perfectly aligned streets, 90 degrees. Um, uh, there is here the famous great bus, which I will show later on in a separate uh, photograph. And there are lots of huge buildings, huge structures, which seem to have been community structures, apparently. Now, the interesting thing here, and this came to light a few years ago, is that you have this north-south compass. Actually, a German uh, astronomer by name Wanske found that this north-south axis was wrong, and there was a one to two degree deviation between this axis and the true north and south. He did calculations, and he found that actually the Harappans did not orient their cities north-south, at least Mohanjo-Daro. They oriented them east-west. And why east-west? Because around 2600 BC, there was a particular constellation which is the Pleiades, which was rising due east. And now with the precession of the equinoxes, that uh, uh, constellation which some of you uh, must know because in Sanskrit it is called Kritika and um, these are actually, you know, the, the, the six wives of the Saptarishis um, uh, Saptarishis be, being the great bear and uh, this is found near Taurus I will show it on the sky map soon and this astronomer, this has been confirmed by also Canadian astronomer Malville found that definitely the Harappans used that constellation in their town planning the, uh, if you give the next slide, please. You will have here a map which I drew with the astronomy software. This is a map of the sky of Mohenjo-Daro in 2700 BC. Uh, these are latitudes and longitudes of Mohenjo-Daro precisely. And you find here, I found it more convenient to show it on the western point, that is after sunset. 
you find here the uh, Pleiades or Kritika in Sanskrit. So, uh, you see here you have the great Orion constellation for example. So this is now something which is accepted and why is it so important? Why should we point out that uh, Pleiades was an important constellation to the Harappans? Because it is a crucial constellation in the Rig Veda. In the Rig Veda, Kritika comes and in the Brahmanas especially which follow the Rig Veda, we have this statement that the Pleiades never deviate from the East. The Pleiades never deviate from the East. This happened exclusively during Harappan times. It was not true after 2200 BC. It was no longer true because of the precession of the equinoxes. So, Kritika, this Pleiades, was given a very important place in the earliest Vedic astronomy and it was the first of the 27 nakshatras. It is the origin of the uh, system of nakshatras. This is the starting point of the 27 nakshatras. And we find that this uh, um, constellation which is so important in Vedic astronomy is also important in Harappan town planning. Therefore, a Vedic Harappan connection. Next please. Now coming to building. You see, uh, we are told that Harappan town planning never survived and uh, it was never reproduced elsewhere in India. It is partly true. It is partly true, for example, that the extensive sanitation system which you find in Harappan cities does not reappear in the Ganges Valley 1000 years later. It takes much more, many more centuries to, to, to come partly, even then partly. But building techniques, not town planning, but building techniques survived. And for example, this is a reconstituted Harappan house with a central yard and uh, there is a well here and all the rooms are organized around the central yard. And this is something which, as most of you would know, has been a typical feature of an Indian house and you find it extensively still in rural areas, especially in the, in the north. Uh, this is still, it remains the, the typical design of a rural Indian house. That is one. Number two, I don't have the slides, but uh, someone like Bibi Lal, the, the, uh, uh, one of the eldest uh, Indian archaeologists, has in Kalibangan, when he was excavating Kalibangan in uh, Rajasthan, he found that the floors were constituted with a special technique of mixing charcoal and terracotta nodules. So he was puzzled until someone remarked that in the next village, they were still building houses with the same technique of mixing terracotta nodules and charcoal nodules. And the purpose is simply twofold to keep insects out and dampness out. It seems it's a very effective combination. Anyway, it is still used. So, Vibhilal found that this building technique was still used after a gap of 4,500 years without break. Next, please. Talking of building, this is... Um, a very striking line of niches. You see, there are actually four of them. We find we see them. We see only three here. But uh, uh, after reconstitution, this is in Pirak. Pirak is in Pakistan. It is part of a big complex, well-known complex of Mehrgar Pirak Naosharo, at the foot of the Bolan Pass in Baluchistan, to be precise. And this huge site was excavated by a French. Uh, archaeologist by name Jean-François Jarige. And Jarige noted this pattern of 
four layers of niches and what struck him most was that uh, next slide please what struck him most was that in the next town nearby this formed part of what he called the abandoned Hindu quarters we are in Baluchistan and this was built in about the 1950s or so by Hindu communities in Baluchistan who were later expelled and so on but they built with precisely the same pattern of niches for layers, same dimensions and so on after a break of over 3000 years the Pirak uh, niches which I showed date 2300 BC this is the, what is called the late Harappan phase so 1300 BC 2950 AD and you find exactly the same pattern so he was himself so struck that he recorded it next please <coughs> here this is the very important uh, city very impressive also city of Dhunavira which is located in Kutch uh, north of Saurashtra extremely impressive because number one it is monumental city huge structures number two they are all made of stone and not bricks like most Harappan cities most Harappan cities are made of fire bricks this is a notable exception and it's purely built of huge stones but it's been excavated by uh, uh, Dr. R. S. Biss of the Archaeological Survey of India. The excavation is almost complete. But what struck R. S. Biss was that he found, and this is a feature which is actually found in many Harappan cities, he found three clear layers in the city: the upper city, uh, then the middle city, and the lower city. And the upper city probably housed administrators or rulers but actually to be honest we know very little about them they have been extremely discreet uh, class of rulers and administrators and we have very few uh, clear traces about them then the middle city manufacturers uh, artisans craftsmen and then the lower city with lots of water reservoirs by the way uh, because Holavira they were excellent at harvesting water you have dams here big ancient dams built on the two rivers and so on and lots of wells and so on so RSBs was very struck because he said that this is exactly what is described in the Rig Veda and the Rig Veda describes cities with three layers they are called Parama, Madhyama and Avama so in the Rig Veda we have these three layers in the city the upper, the medium and the lower and this is what we find underground so he said this is a virtual physical representation of the Rig Veda. Next please. Now we go quickly to some scientific and technological areas and this is one of the foundations of the whole Harappan world. Why? Because this is a system of weights and this system of weights was uniform throughout the whole Harappan world. You see, uh, a civilization of the extent of the Harappan civilization uh, has to function with trade. What archaeologists call a civilization means basically that you have urban development, you have administration, you have some form of writing and you have trade, internal as well as external. If you don't have these, you can't really speak. You may have uh, a rural development. Actually, the Harappan civilization took some two to three thousand years before the mature uh, uh, urban stage to develop so you, you can have a 
intensive rural life, but you won't have what is technically called a civilization which involves administration, writing and trade. So, here you find that uh, are made of soft stone, they come from Aladino, I think these, but they are found all over the uh, Harappan world. You have a system of weights and it's very important uh, for two reasons. The first is that the, uh, you have actually a number of weights, the, the units follow a double system, mathematical system. One is a geometric progression, so it's 1, 2, 4, if this first unit is 1, it's 1, 2, 4, 8, 16 and so on, till 64. But from 64 onward, you don't go to 128 and so on. You go rather to 160. And 160 is 10 times 16, so multiplication by 10. And then 200 and 320, which is again 10 times 32, and so on. And it goes on and on till uh, 12,800. So the last weight is 12,800 times the first unit. And the last weight is something like 13 kilos. It's a big stone like that. So, this shows that the Harappans were actually frequently multiply, multiplying by 10. We cannot call it fully a decimal system that might be too much to claim, but it shows that this number 10 was important in the, in the uh, mathematics. And this is something which is found again in lots of proportions of buildings and streets, and uh, maybe we have one slide after this one. So, uh, therefore, this system is a very elaborate one, but what's very important about it is that it reappears identical in the early historical cities of the Ganges Valley around uh, 6th to 8th century BC. 6th to 8th century BC, which means nearly, you know, uh, 1,500 years later, after this big break, this exact system with the same values of weight reappears unchanged. And this is very important because it shows that this so-called Vedic night, you know, where all urban civilization is supposed to have disappeared uh, between the Harappan and historical civilization, actually some trade activities did continue. So, uh, evidence of uh, continuity, number one, and also the decimal system. And I remind you that the first literary evidence of the decimal system in India is in the Rig Veda. In the Rig Veda, you have constant mentions of number 10, hundred, thousand, it goes up to one lakh, and also ten, twenty, thirty, forty, up to hundred. So, the Rig Veda clearly functions on a decimal system, and we find traces of it in the Harappan world. Next slide, please. Now, coming to measurements, this is an ivory scale found at Lothal. Lothal is a site south of Saurashtra, which was excavated by Dr. S. R. Rao, the famous archaeologist who also discovered the submerged city of Dwaraka, nearby in fact. This is not far. And this is the scale, this is a reproduction of, on a modern scale of course, and this gives you the actual scale. So, what's important here is that you have precise indentations on this ivory scale. What are the values of these indentations? They are, in the Lothal scale, one point 704 millimeters. Each each unit here is 1.704 millimeters. What is that so important? Because 
again in the Ganges cities you find a very similar unit uh, being used and in fact uh, in the Atashastra which is more or less uh, you know conventionally associated with the Mauryan times about 4th century BC, 5th century BC in the Atashastra you find the Angula unit being 1.77 millimeters. So this is 1.704 and that is 1.77 billion. It's very close. And we are entitled to uh, uh, suppose a continuity between the Lothal scale all the way to the Arthasastra. Next please. Now we just a, an example of continuity in the field of agriculture. This is what has been called possibly the earliest excavated field in the world. It dates about 2500 BC. It is at Kalibangan in uh, Rajasthan. Kalibangan was jointly excavated by Bivilal and B.K. Tafar. And they found these uh, furrows in double arrangement, long furrows and short ones here. They were very puzzled uh, as to why this double system of furrows until they explored the fields nearby. Next slide, please. And they found that the fields nearby were exactly the same as what they had excavated after, once again, a gap of 4,500 years. And they asked the farmers, why are you growing uh, these in double furrows? So the farmers explained that, you see, these long furrows are not south and therefore they don't give much, the plants don't, get, don't give much shade. And the short furrows are east-west and the plants therefore give longer shade. So what we do, we put long uh, tall plants like mustard and others in the uh, long furrows because they will give shorter sh shadows and they won't interfere with the others. And we put short plants in the furrows that get more shadows and these are all kinds of grams and so on. So therefore, they, with this they were able to understand the Harappan pattern and this is a very striking uh, example of, you know, undisturbed continuity. And the, one more in agriculture, actually. One more in agriculture, for a long time the Harappans were denied the credit of having a, a plough-based uh, uh, agriculture. It was thought that they were just, you know, loosely turning the, the soil and planting. Until this model, it's a terracotta, it's a small terracotta model, it's not an actual plowshare, but this model is unmistakable and this was found in Banawali, which is not very far from uh, Kalibangan. And it shows therefore that they were plowing their fields, number one. Number two, that they used a form of plowshare which is extremely similar to what was still used in rural India till recent years. Uh, with almost no difference at all. So, once again, continuity. Next, please. Shipping, briefly, and this is one of two seals which have come to us with uh, representations, maybe a bit of focus if possible, uh, with representations of ships, you find the, the uh, you know, tall hull, and this is the central cabin. Now, this is on a small, you know, soapstone see uh, next slide please and on the index today this is taken by Kenoyer the American archaeologist on the index today they still have 
exactly the same shape of ship without any difference whatsoever with the central cabin. So again, uh, you know, no break. Next please. Now coming to governance, there has been a, this is a very important point though it's still being debated, but you know for a long time there was a big question mark about how this huge area of the Harappan civilization, in fact you see it starts from almost the Iran border, all of Pakistan, part of Afghanistan, there is even a site up there which is called Shortuge. And then it goes uh, into Kashmir, and uh, there are some sites in Kashmir, and part of UP, and all the way to almost the Narmada River. So it's a colossal area which is much ex more extensive than, say, ancient Egypt or ancient Mesopotamia, contemporary civilizations. It is like four or five times as big. So how did they manage? to govern, to administer such a huge area very smoothly because we don't find anywhere any evidence of war any evidence of man-made destruction in the Harappan world it does not exist and there is also not no evidence of massive poverty or dis that I will explain later on so therefore a fairly peaceful, fairly prosperous civilization and very well run with good civic administration no encroachment on the streets. We find, for example, in Mohenjo-daro for seven centuries, the main streets don't show a single sign of encroachment, you know, which even in an Indian city today we can't uh, uh, boast of. So, uh, excellent civic administration, uniform system of writing, uniform system of weights, and so on. How could they manage it? So the big question was, was it a central, was it a centralized empire? with a capital somewhere like possibly as was long suggested Mohenjo-daro, the capital of let's say the Harappan Empire this was initially for decades the view of archaeologists and they were I think they were much influenced you know by the Roman Empire because archaeologists always compare civilizations so the Roman Empire therefore the Harappan Empire but in recent years there has been a lot of rethinking and basically a realization that the area is just too vast to have been administered for, from a central point especially because even Mohenjo-daro you can't identify a single building as having been say an emperor's palace or something like that there is no such visible thing so the thinking now is that it was rather a kind of federation of city-states just like was the case in ancient Greece for example and there might have been one centered around Mohenjo-daro, one centered around Harappa, one centered around Ganwariwala, which is on the Sarasvati River. Ganwariwala is a huge city, but not yet excavated, in fact. And possibly one centered around Dholavira. Now, if this is the case, and this is what more and more archaeologists, American as well as Indian, are coming to, then we have a very important fact, which is that this is the prototype of later Indian development even in the Ganges Valley you know the uh, uh, 16 Mahajanaparas uh, of Buddhist times and which were nothing but you know what is called the early republics if you remember your history books and this would be the prototype of that so therefore 
in the field of governance it could well be that later Indian civilization took inspiration from the Harappan model or that let us say it survived somehow. Next please. <coughs> I am coming now to ornaments and various uh, craft techniques and uh, uh, before moving on to the purely cultural field. What is very striking is that the Harappan developed a number of very specific techniques of making these ornaments. For example, here you see these long beads of uh, carnalite uh, were drilled with sophisticated bee, uh, uh, drilling bits and this is a, a unique technique because the, the, the central hole had to be very thin so that the, the stone would not break and this is done purely in the Indus Valley civilization, not elsewhere. And that's why the Mesopotamian civilization, especially its princesses, were so fond of Harappan ornaments and they imported massive amounts of it and this is partly a source of the great wealth and prosperity of the uh, Harappan economy uh, until its collapse. Now, all these techniques have been documented by people like S.R. Rao, uh, Bibilal, Kenoyar in Pakistan with quite a lot of documentation and it has been shown that the uh, uh, present craftsmen uh, in India, for example in the Gulf of Kambir, S.R. Rao showed it eloquently, use identically the same techniques to produce similar ornaments today. And you find, for example, this is a flattened bead of gold. It's pure gold and flattened with a small cylinder at the center to pass the string. This is found in all tribal and rural areas of Gujarat and Maharashtra. Uh, this has been documented. And when I showed this slide in Gowahati last year, I was told by an Arunachali tribal that in fact in their tribe also they have such beads with exactly the same pattern and this is something regarded as extremely precious and rare for them. So we have a very clear documented survival of lots of uh, artisans' techniques and one or two more I will demonstrate. Next please. Well, this is just a, 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 you know, a kind of assortment of all kinds of Harappan uh, ornaments which were assembled in various uh, ways and it's not only the drilling techniques, it is also the ble bleaching techniques, that is to say, um, uh, you know, decolorizing of the stones and um, uh, also the the um, the way the grooves are made, the way the the shells are cut. I think there may be a, a shell bangle coming later on. So all these sewing techniques have been actually reconstituted by several archaeologists like Kenoya, with the help of local artisans. Next, please. Um, here, in fact, I show this slide for two reasons. One is bangles and we find lots of bangles in uh, you know um, used by Harappan ladies bangles of all kinds of materials uh, especially shells and stones now this of course is something which has survived in today's India number one number two this is of course a grave and you can see that a number of uh, uh, things pottery and some items have been placed before the dead. This is very important. Why? It shows that the dead were treated respectfully. You see, they were buried and some items uh, kept in pots 
uh, uh, were kept with the dead, they were treated respectfully, number one. Number two, some belief in afterlife. Because if you don't believe in afterlife, you're not going to trouble yourself keeping these pots and, and, and items. But at the same time, there is something which I find a pe- peculiarly Indian attitude, in that the dead is not given too much wealth. You know, in, in, um, uh, there is nowhere in the entire Indus Valley civilization uh, those extraordinary tombs you find in Egypt, for example, where so much wealth and gold and jewels and whatnot was buried with the dead. This does not happen here. In other words, the Europeans were very wealthy. It's not that they, they, they didn't uh, have gold and so on. They had. But they didn't want to uh, buried with their dead. In other words, they wanted to keep the wealth in circulation with the living. So therefore, w- life in their psychology, and this is something we find throughout the Harappan cities, uh, it was more important, more importance was given to the living, not so much to the dead. They were treated respectfully, but not in any particularly grand manner. And this is something which is still part of the present uh, uh, Indian culture. You treat the dead respectfully, but then it's over and life goes on. Next, please. <coughs> now, talking about ornaments, this is a one of a series of statues which came to light. I think this is in um, Mehrgar. No, excuse me. This is Nausaro. Nausaro excavated again by Zahis, the French archaeologist and dated by him 2800 BC. And what strikes Zariz immediately is that on a series of these statuettes, you find here, at the parting of the hair, you find red pigment. So this red pigmentation obviously is the origin of the still uh, living uh, custom of Indian Hindu ladies, married ladies, of putting uh, kum kum here. So this is 2800 BC and therefore we have, you know, almost uh, 5000 years of continuity for such a uh, custom. Next please. This is the so-called priest king and I will show him in a normal posture later on. The reason uh, I show him like this here is because of this bead and I assume that this bead can be taken as a prototype or a representation of the, the, the bindi uh, uh, which is, you know, the usual Hindu custom. Next please. In this section we will see that a number of uh, uh, Hindu customs are traceable to the Harappan works and uh, takes the, the place of the wax, and then you remove the clay and you polish and so on. So that's a technique which was possibly invented by the Harappans. It seems to be one of the earliest documented such techniques, and it has been used continuously in India thereafter. Uh, it is spread all over India. If you go, for example, in Tamil Nadu to Swami Malai, you will find in Swami Malai traditional craftsmen making bronze statues with exactly the same identical techniques of lost works. So this is a, a, a clear uh, example of survival of techniques. Next please. 
uh, just an example to show that there are many types of ornaments and uh, games and toys that the Harappans designed. In fact, uh, uh, lots of toys. Uh, this is a kind of, this is simply a decoration for elephants in terracotta. And uh, as we know, decorating elephants is a, a, a kind of tradition in India. Next please. This is important, it comes from Harappa, the city of Harappa on the Ravi river and uh, it comes from the cemetery. It uh, shows a dish on stand but what's very important here is this little hole at the center which shows that they were using it as a kind of oil lamp. And uh, in some of these uh, uh, dishes traces of soot have been found. So they were using the hole to plant the wick. So therefore, this um, Indian, uh, again, custom of oil lamps can be traced to the Harappan world. And I'll give a second example just later. Next, please. This uh, is a famous photograph. It comes from Lothal. It's a set of terracotta uh, figures. Uh, tiny, you know, this, this uh, one or two inches at the most, rather more one than two. And it obviously represents a game. The Harappans had many board games. Balls have not been found because don't forget that uh, we have to judge Harappan culture purely by non-degradable materials. Stones, you know, copper, sometimes silver, a little gold and so on. We have almost not a single wooden or cloth artifact from the Harappan where they have all decayed and disappeared and that's a great pity because that could have revealed a lot of different art forms which are lost. So this has been identified as a kind of prototype of chess. And uh, S.R. Rao in fact uh, had fun putting this on a chess board and showing that it could be used as, as a game of chess. We can't be 100% sure that this is pure chess. It need not be pure chess but there, there seems to be a clear relationship. Uh, and I remind you that chess reemerges again in the Ganges Valley during the historical times. Next please. So again continuity. This I don't need to give any explanation. It comes from the city of Harappa. These are made of terracotta. The only difference with our modern dice is that the numbers are not, you know, uh, 6 plus 1, 5 plus 2, 4 plus 3, you, you know how they are paired today. That pairing does not take place, uh, but otherwise there is no visible difference. Next please. We move to religious and cultural symbols. This is uh, 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 on a broken uh, seal. Those seals were made of soapstone most of the time and um, baked at high temperature for several days. This is of course a trishul, uh, so we have to, uh, we have several other signs of a kind of Shaivite uh, practices in uh, uh, Harappan cities. For example, a few lingams have been found, so there is some dispute whether they are actual lingams, but it seems yes. Uh, but, you know, this is not a very widespread phenomenon, but they, we, we, we find something which can be related to a uh, kind of worship of Shiva or a Shiva like deity. Next please. Swastika appears on not one or two but hundreds of seals of the uh, Indus Valley cities. 
in various patterns, single swastika, double swastika, most of them in this direction, that is counterclockwise, but a few clockwise also. Next please. And I need not tell you how important is this swastika in later India. Uh, this is a important seal which is known as the uh, adoration seal. There is here a kneeling figure with a kind of kamandalu uh, here on a stand on a low stool there is a kamandalu and this figure is kneeling with uh, outstretched arms like this and there is a kind of god here appearing between two branches of people. Uh, this people, you see that he has a uh, triple kind of horn here and uh, the reason I show this is because the people tree was a sacred tree in the Harappan religion and uh, this appears in many motifs on pottery and other items and uh, uh, the you know uh, holiness of the people tree is something that of course sacredness of the people tree Ashwata tree is something that has um, it survives afterwards and right up to today. Next please. Uh, this is not a people properly speaking but it's a tree on stand and this is a motif, this is a small terracotta tablet. It's a motif that constantly reappears uh, in Mauryan uh, times and it is depicted almost identically on many Mauryan coins and a few seals. Also on a few coins from the Sangam era in uh, uh, South India. So tree worship you might say uh, or at least a certain sacredness attributed to trees which is of course a feature of uh, religion in today's India also. Next please. Now there are a number of symbols appearing on, uh, you know, patterns, symbols appearing on Harappan seals, potteries and so on. This is one of them. This is on a copper plate, I believe, from Mohanjo-Daro, if I remember well. And it is called by archaeologists, the endless knot. Now this endless knot reappears in Gujarat in something like uh, 800 AD, if I remember right. Um, yes, something like that. And uh, it shows the survival of the symbol, but also it shows that uh, these Harappan symbols had a certain official stamp to them. Because this is on a royal decree uh, issued by a kingdom in Gujarat. I can't find the date here precisely, but uh, if... Ah, yes. It is Saka 806, therefore it will be uh, uh, 880 or so AD. So, uh, this is from, from a Gujarati uh, kingdom. Number one. Number two, you are familiar with the Rangolis or uh, columns and uh, this is of course a pattern which is frequently used also. So, survival of symbols. Next please. Here on the left, you have a mother goddess uh, which is a terracotta from Harappa, the town of Harappa. And you see extravagant hairdress with huge flowers and necklace and so on up to the belt. This is something uh, called Mathura style found in North India around 200 BC therefore with a gap of almost 2400 years. And you find almost identical patterns, extravagant headdress 
and necklace and belt and so on. So, some art forms, but unfortunately here the evidence is a bit limited because we, we the Harappans don't, have not been extremely creative artists. So far as we can judge from what we've got so far, it's nothing comparable to say ancient Egypt, which was a, a, an absolute explosion of art. Uh, Harappans have been very restrained in their artistic expression, though they were capable of artistic expression. But um, this is one of the few parallels we can clearly draw. Next, please. Um, yeah, I'm afraid I have put this slide reverse, left to right. Doesn't matter. It should be uh, uh, what is left should be right, and so on. Um, this is the famous great bath in Mohenjo-daro, which I showed you on the first map. And this great bath, and here we come to another important feature of uh, Harappan religion, definitely had a ritual purpose. It was not a bath for bathing, because the, the, the inhabitants of Mohenjo-daro had, most of them, their individual bathrooms. Therefore, they did not need a, a, a community bath. But it was a ritual bath. It was about because the, the, the bricks at the bottom have been found to be sealed by bitumen, which is a natural form of tar, and therefore there was water, and you see here the basis of a number of columns. So this had, of course, a, you know, a roof supported by all these columns. This was probably a temple or, you know, something very close to the uh, 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 holy uh, uh, basins you find in today's temples. And this uh, use of water for purification is something which has, uh, next slide please, which has struck archaeologists because you find extensive networks in Harappan cities of drains and, uh, next slide please, bathrooms. See, for example, this is Lothal. And you find here all these individual, the houses have disappeared, but you have still the individual bathroom platforms with drains connecting them to the outer drain which takes the used waters all the way out of the city. And this is a common feature in most Harappan uh, uh, cities. So therefore there was a great attention given to cleanliness. But please understand that this is a kind of luxury in those times. You don't need to have this degree of cleanliness and you don't find it in contemporary civilizations also. Either in Mesopotamia or Egypt you don't find it. There are no bathrooms. There is no uh, a community system of sewerage and, and so on. So, the, this uh, actually it is Kenoya, the American archaeologist, who stresses that obviously the Harappans were gi uh, giving to, you know, purification by water the same importance as is given in today's Hinduism. So that's an important correlation also. Next please. Uh, this is now a fire altar at Lothal again, uh, identified as such by S.R. Rao. And there are several others in Kalibangan, for example, and one more I think I will show. So, there is, there is an element, possibly not very widespread, but it is there, just like uh, the, 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 the Trishul and other uh, religious elements are there. Fire worship seems to have been an important element in the Harappan religion. And of course, fire worship is also something very important in the Veda. So, uh, therefore, a Vedic element, if we may say so, in the Harappan religion. Next, please. This is a kind, possibly a small temple in the city of Banawali, 
on the Saraswati and uh, uh, the remarkable feature here is this upsidal altar and uh, this upsidal shape is something that has survived later on in India in fact when I showed this slide in Kerala last year at the conference of Vedic scholars they immediately told me that this is one of the main shapes for Vedic altars which they use today they use the square shape they use the circular shape and they use this upsidal shape identically so they were feeling the Vedic scholars were feeling quite at home with this next please this is one type of conch shell which was the opening was you know cleanly sewn off so that it could be used to pour libations offerings exactly as it is still used in uh, some ceremonies and temples uh, today in India so uh, th this is clearly traceable to Harappan customs next please another type of conchel uh, which you will have ah yes it is the other tray this, uh, this is the second type of conchel which the Harappans were using and you will understand immediately if I explain that the top was sewn off so therefore it could be used for trumpeting so this was actually uh, exactly the, the, the conchel used you know in today's uh, temples and pujas and so on uh, this comes to us straight from Harappan religion next please If the projector works, we'll go now through a few seals. Those seals are tiny. Keep in mind there are they are two to two, about two inches uh, uh, width. And before we see the seals, this is an important figure in Harappan religion. It is the mother goddess, and this mother goddess is found in many shapes. Why do we think she is a goddess? Because again of extravagant decoration but also these two cups here and in a few of these figurines traces of soot has been found uh, at the bottom of the cups therefore the cups were used as oil lamps of course this particular custom has not survived in the sense that today you don't find oil lamps on the each side of the head but there was there was definitely, uh, you know, a ritual associated with this. And I have to point out that Mother Goddess is something that uh, is permanent, uh, prevalent throughout later Indian uh, Hindu religion. So, this is uh, one more correlation. Next, please. Now, coming to the seals. First of all, a very important um, personage here. Uh, who is probably the same who was standing between the two branches of people before uh, there is the same triple kind of horn here and this god is uh, seated in a uh, yogic posture on a raised platform uh, next slide please so this points to a certain tradition of yoga we find it in this is the famous Tashupati seal with this God again with triple uh, uh, tricorn as it's called uh, headdress he has also three faces and three faces I mean gods with three faces or four faces are very common features in later Hinduism and he is seated on a raised platform in the same posture 
with two antelopes beneath. Next please. We find therefore a tradition of yoga which is confirmed by a number of figurines from various parts. This is from Kalibangan. I don't have to explain anything. You can recognize. Uh, in Lothal, a series of figurines in Terracotta, which I don't have here, shows various kinds of asanas, hatha yogic postures also. Uh, next please. So therefore this yoga uh, takes birth in the Harappan cities and yoga with meditation. This is the famous priest king. Uh, the name, the appellation priest king may or may not be correct. But you can see that this important sculpture you, uh, with this dress uh, going over the, the left shoulder. By the way, I had, I had shown you this bead earlier. Even this is consistent with later practices where, you know, you put ashes or other things on the, this exact spot on the arm. But the important thing is, this personage is shown in deep contemplation. And this is something very unusual. You don't find in Egypt or, or Greece or Mesopotamia or elsewhere, uh, kings or important people shown in deep contemplation. That is absolutely not the case. So this is something, not only typically Indian, if I may say so, but it, it uh, 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 let us say, it confirms this uh, tradition of yoga and meditation. And the irony is that we are told this tradition came only with the Aryans and the Vedas and not before. So clearly here there is a, a, a clash with the Aryan invasion theory. Uh, uh, the Aryans are having brought yoga and Vedas and so on with them. That is not the case. Next please. Very quickly a few seeds showing uh, animals. This is the buff buffalo. And the reason I show them is that these are all basically Vedic symbols. The buffalo in the Rig Veda is a symbol for Agni. Next please. This is the bull. No, excuse me, it's not a bull, it's a bison. And the bison again is associated with Agni in the Rig Veda. Next please. This is a triple head mythical, triple headed mythical animal. And Agni in the Rig Veda is described precisely as triple headed. Agni with three heads. Next please. Uh, haven't we missed one? No? Maybe not. Maybe it comes after. Alright. Um, this is actually a seal which has puzzled archaeologists, but which has a simple explanation if we look for a Vedic connection. It is again a ship. And on this ship you find two birds. Why should we find two birds on a ship? This was the question mark. The a possible explanation is that you have in the Rig Veda a story of Bhujyu. And Bhujyu, this is a story which comes five, six, seven times in the Rig Veda. It's actually something very, uh, it's an important, uh, you know, light motive in the Rig Veda. This Bhujyu goes out to sea and he gets lost at sea caught in a storm. And he is finally saved by the Ashwins, the Ashwin gods. And they come to him, they come to the ship in the form of two big birds. And then they lead the ship back to the shore and they rescue Puju. So, this could be an illustration of that story. In any case, uh, this is the only 
plausible explanation that has been proposed so far. Next please. Here we have an important uh, representation of again uh, this same deity here and then someone who slaughters a buffalo. So this seems quite reminiscent of the Mahishamardini uh, story of Durga slaughtering the buffalo and it's, it's, it has to be noted because it's one of the very 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 few violent scenes depicted on seals. You don't have anything else, you don't have say fights between humans or any such thing. So this has to have an important ritual uh, meaning and uh, we can correlate it with the, the Mahishara Mardini uh, symbolism. Next please. This is the famous unicorn. Actually this mythical animal which is a kind of composite animal of several animals and with a single horn it is found on the majority, the vast majority of the seals. Uh, something like possibly 1,500 unicorns have been uh, depicted out of 3,000 seals which we have. This animal is a big puzzle. We don't know exactly what it represented in the Harappan mind. But one possibility uh, is that it was a, a some god, some deity. Uh, there is you know, traditionally, if you take the avatars of Vishnu, uh, Varaha, the boar avatar, is described as one horn, Ekashringa in Sanskrit, Ekashringa. And um, similarly, in the Mahabharata, there is a passage where Lord Krishna says that, in bygone days, I was known as one horn, Ekashringa. We don't know whether this is a valid connection or not, but uh, this concept of single horn, unicorn, has survived in later Hinduism. Secondly, here you have a very puzzling uh, <coughs> ritual stand as, it, as it has been called by archaeologists. And this ritual stand uh, comes again on Mauryan coins in the historical cities uh, almost 1500 years later. It, but we don't know its meaning and there has been a lot of debate. Some people have proposed that this was a kind of portable fire altar. Others have said that this like uh, for example Dr. Mahadevan uh, of Chennai here, uh, he has argued that, that this was a Soma filter exactly and therefore the filtering of the Vedic uh, Soma the truth is that we don't know, but this symbol reappears on Mauryan coins and very strangely on coins of the Sangam age. You find quite a lot of them, but in the coins of the Sangam age, you don't have the unicorn in front of you, uh, you have the horse, which you don't, we don't have here. Next please. Well, this is the bull. I think I have mixed my uh, slides a bit. This is the bull I was telling you about. And the bull is, of course, he is also very much represented very frequently on the seals. Very an important animal, undoubtedly. Uh, very venerable, as you can see, in the, the, the care with which he has been represented. And the bull is, of course, a very major Vedic symbol. Uh, uh, Indra is called the bull. Agni also sometimes is called the bull. Surya is called the bull, and so on. So, we have one more possible uh, Vedic connection. Next, please.
this is my last slide and uh, it explains something of the mechanism of this continuity you see there is now no doubt at all that a number of harapan practices concepts customs traditions symbols have survived in later india now how did they survive because it's a question it's a valid question you see all these big cities here which uh, you find circled in red uh, all these big cities did stop to function as cities uh, around 1900 1800 bc the whole urban administration of the harappan world collapsed it doesn't mean that the harappans disappeared overnight they didn't disappear they were there they went back to the rural settlements to the smaller settlements because there are a lot of small small villages harappan villages obviously they went back some of the cities were still occupied for a few more centuries but then you find that all the techniques of building standardized uh, uh, uniform standardized brick sizes and so on are abandoned you find encroachments you find haphazard buildings so the obviously the whole civic setup has collapsed it no longer exists and this is due to a number of reasons i mean as far as the current thinking goes because uh, you know this is something we need to have more inputs about when more cities are, are excavated number one there was a huge drought on this entire region actually extending all the way to the gulf and this started around 1900 bc now this drought created a crisis in the uh, agricultural output which was one of the mainstays of uh, harappan uh, uh, you know economy and it seems to have affected the mesopotamian kingdoms very badly and their economy collapsed and therefore they ceased to be in a position to import harappan jewelry so the whole harappan manufactures and production suffered and this could have left led to an economic collapse number 1 number 2 ecological problems very major cataclysms apparently especially with this river saraswati which has been identified with the uh, uh, saraswati river the, the vedic saraswati for a long time uh, this river dries up in many stages starting around 2500 bc it dries up increasingly and by 1900 bc it's totally dry kali bangan which i mentioned a few times kali bangan is abandoned in precisely 1900 bc when the saraswati on which side it is situated dries up so this was actually the main lifeline of the harappan civilization because we find that over a thousand sites are located around uh, on the banks of the saraswati against only 1 or 200 on the banks of the indus the reason we call it indus valley civilization is because the earliest sites were discovered like mohenjo-daro along the indus but after indian independence hundreds of sites came to light because you see mohenjo-daro and harappa today are in pakistan therefore the indian archaeologists had nothing to work upon so they said let us see if we can find harappan cities here in india and when they set to work they found you see all these uh, cities here hundreds literally hundreds also hundreds were found in pakistan this is known as the cholistan desert 
and then the uh, Harappan cities appear in uh, um, Gujarat. This is Dholavira, Lothal, which I have mentioned, and so on. All the ways to the Narmada, and this is Daimabad, possibly the southernmost Harappan city. So, this uh, Sarasvati river was possibly the main lifeline of the Harappan civilization, which is why many scholars now say we must call it Indus Sarasvati civilization or even Sarasvati Sindhu civilization. So, once it collapsed, what, once, what, what happened is that there were major earthquakes and Kalibangan gives evidence of earthquakes, for example, and it seems that part of the river was diverted into the Yamuna and part of the river was diverted into the Satlanj. So this is what happened and naturally the lifeline being gone, the, uh, the whole um, Harappan society suffered a great blow. There are other causes, other speculations like excessive deforestation, it's possible, shift in monsoons, uh, it's possible, but all this is still, uh, you know, not firmly established. There seems to have been a combination of factors because it was a stable society and prosperous at the same time. What happened then is that all these Harappans started migrating once the environment became very hostile. They migrated and we have evidence, evidence of a lot of post, late and post Harappan settlements southward towards Gujarat and Maharashtra and eastward towards uh, the Ganges, towards the, the Ganges Valley and that is what ultimately after a few centuries uh, you know, picks up again and forms the early kingdoms uh, in the historical cities of the Ganges Valley. So, in other words, we can perfectly well explain how the Harappan traditions were transmitted to later Indian civilization. There is no difficulty in that. In conclusion, <coughs> I would like to say two things. Number one, that the presence of this river is very important because in itself, it is a fatal blow to the Aryan invasion theory. Why is it so? Because this river dries up again around 1900 BC. But you find it extensively worshipped in the Rig Veda. Rig Veda mentions Sarasvati as a river flowing from the mountain to the sea. And then there is the famous Nadishukta which... Uh, gives precisely the list of Ganga, Yamuna, Saraswati, Sushudri and so on and we have all the rivers precisely depicted, listed in this uh, Nadi Shukta. So therefore, there is no doubt about the identity of the river but this river worshipped over 60 times in the Rig Veda is worshipped, don't forget, by the Aryans who are supposed, the Vedic Aryans who are supposed to have entered India to the northeast only around 1500 BC. But in 1500 BC there was no Sarasvati. It had dried up for, for 500 years at the least. So therefore, you know, the presence of this river, the presence of an extensive civilization along its banks shows that what is depicted in the, in the Rig Veda is nothing but uh, uh, the, the Harappan cities, the Harappan world. At the same time, I would like to voice a word of caution some scholars, uh, you know, just equate the two saying that Harappan civilization is nothing but Vedic civilization or Harappan culture is nothing but Vedic culture. I think the picture would have been a little more complex because 
the Harappan culture obviously integrates a lot of regional elements. So I feel that there is a clear Vedic background, but we have a lot of uh, uh, local input, possibly this mother goddess, you know, uh, for example, the mother goddess appears in the south. It does not appear along the Indus. So there are regional variations, and uh, I feel we have a broad Vedic background to this civilization, but we do not necessarily have a uh, 100% Vedic context because the composers of the Vedic hymns, the rishis, they were living from their own uh, accounts, what we can, the picture we can form in the, from the Rig Veda, they were living in kinds of ashrams on the banks of various rivers, not only the, not only the, the Saraswati, but the Sindhu and so on. And therefore they might not have lived in the Harappan city, you know, in Mohdudaro or in Kalibangan itself. So, they may have inspired the Harappan culture, but it would have integrated lots of regional uh, elements, just as Hinduism, as we know it, has always done, right up to today, if you go to a small remote uh, Tamil village, you know, you'll find this uh, Gramam Devatam, this uh, village deities, they may be specific to that particular village, and, but then somehow they get fused into mainstream Hinduism. So, these kind of mechanisms are bound to have happened uh, there. In summary, I want to stress that there is absolutely no sign of cultural break. So, as I said in the beginning, no archaeological record of an invasion, no anthropological record of an invasion, no literary record of an invasion, and no cultural break which this Aryan invasion imposes on Indian civilization, uh, putting Harappan culture totally isolated with no connection whatsoever with later Indian culture, and imagining that, you know, the whole of Vedic uh, culture comes to the Harappan. There is absolutely no such uh, thing. No one can give evidence for this Harappan invasion, and yet it continues to be taught and uh, to be believed in India uh, simply because, you know, it takes time to remove all these colonial myths. But uh, I remind you in the end that uh, it has been uh, convincingly rejected by archaeologists, both Indian as well as American, also French archaeologists, German and so on. And uh, it is time to uh, not only forget about the Aryan invasion theory, but to explore more and more this Harappan civilization, let us hope more sites, important sites will be excavated so that we can form a better idea of its culture. And I believe someday this uh, so-called gap between the Harappan civilization and later Indian civilization, second phase of urban development, will be, you know, almost filled up. This is what uh, an archaeologist like Jim Schaffer has been saying all the time that this gap is a false gap, it is just a gap of our own ignorance. Actually, the urban system collapsed, but everything else survived. The weights survived, the units of length survived, the symbols survived, the cultural practices, religious practices survived. So, there is no break uh, uh, to speak of. And therefore, um, it's a kind of, you know, important testimony to the strength of Indian cultural civilization, that this in, uh, perfect continuity could have been maintained over such, uh, you know, almost 5,000 years altogether, and in every aspect of 
you know, the life of society. And uh, I think it's time to turn to this positive knowledge and forget about all these cobwebs of the past that were designed originally just to divide Indians, you know, divide them between North in Northern Indians, South Indians, and then uh, between so-called Brahmins, the uh, Aryans proper and non-Brahmins, and uh, Hindus and non-Hindus and whatnot. So this was the colonial game, and fair enough, the game was played, but there's no reason to perpetuate it when all evidence is there to the contrary. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for the highly informative and enlightening talk. If anyone has any questions, they can ask the speaker. Questions can be asked directly or can be written on a slip. Excellent question. Uh, there is no doubt at all that there was a very efficient and smoothly running Harappan administration and uh, or system of governance. So what you call law, let us say. Maybe it was not called a law, but anyway, we, we agree. Why has nothing much come to light? For two reasons. See, in the Mesopotamian world, for example, Babylonian kingdoms and so on, hundreds, not hundreds, thousands of those tablets in cuneiform characters have been found and eventually deciphered. And we know how they were ruling. We have even their accounts, you know, account keeping and all that. We have no such thing in the Harappan world because the script has not been deciphered or rather there is no agreement. There is not a single, you see, there has been uh, uh, about 120 or 140 different proposals for the Harappan script, ranging all the way from uh, Sanskrit to uh, Proto-Dravidian, and uh, the basic reason is there is no agreement at all. So we can't read the script today. And therefore we, we don't know whether these seals are kinds of records or something, names of rulers, we can't, we can't say. Second reason is, those rulers, because you mention, you say law, but there has to be law giver. So if you, there is a law giver, it is usually mentioned society it is a ruler. Or a rishi, that is true. But somehow uh, in the Harappan world, he is perfectly invisible. There are no buildings everywhere, anywhere, there are no buildings that you can identify with a ruler's palace or ruler's building. It doesn't exist. You know, contrary to, again, ancient Egypt is most conspicuous. 
read Farago's palaces and so on. There is no such thing. Not only that, there is no representation of a ruler. There is no glorification of any ruler. That is a very important feature in the Harappan, you know, iconography, if you, if you want to call it that. And that's also totally unlike other civilizations where the pharaoh is glorified, the Babylonian king is glorified and so on. No glorification of any ruler. We have therefore a strange society where the ruler is invisible. He may become visible, someday with more evidence. It's quite possible. But as of today, this is what has puzzled archaeologists so much, you know, that how could they run this huge area uh, uh, and uh, with, with so little visibility of a ruling class. So that we, 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 that is why we can't answer. I don't want to further carry this further, but I just want to leave a thought so that some of us may think about it. In the context of Marxist protesting war, the context of society, religion, and even the nation state being patriarchal, the mm. nation, I have been doing a lot of thinking, wondering whether agrarian society, whether Hindu dharma, as, as we understand it today, has a structure which was not patriarchal, there was no lawgiver, but there was some kind of adherence or acceptance of some kind of morality which did not believe in war or conflict, it laid emphasis on material prosperity, a certain attitude towards religion. There was no war or conflict as we understand it. Could, could this be, although I hate the word patriarchal, could this be what we had? It is quite possible. It is quite possible because there is a very unique feature about Harappan civilization. Unique. Only, only one civilization in the world has it in the ancient world and that is total absence of warfare. Total absence of man-made destruction of, on all the sites explored so far. There is not a single piece of this is actually it is Kenoya, the American archaeologist who puts it very clearly and he says that no other civilization in the world has, has you know, there is always war with, between and also in later Indian uh, civilization from Mauryan times on. We do find a lot of war, war warfare going on. Nothing like that in the Harappan world. Very few weapons. A few bronze weapons used mostly for hunting. Because they were hunters. And they did eat lots of, uh, you know, animals. But, uh, so it could very well be that this peaceful, prosperous uh, society with no, uh, you know, conspicuous class of uh, rulers might have obeyed such a pattern, we'll have to wait for more evidence to be sure. But it's a very valid theory. I'll pick up the questions as they come. Some areas of present-day Baluchistan, a form of Dravidian language is still spoken. This apparently shows the presence of non-Sanskrit-speaking people during the Harappan period. Well, this is a misconception and it is a misconception which is repeated from book to book. You, the questioner is referring to the Brahui pocket. There is a tribe in Baluchistan hills called the Brahui. Their language, the Brahui language, is the language which has been akin to Dravidian languages. That is to say, it follows the structure and a bit of the vocabulary of the South Indian languages. So therefore, a lot of people started thinking that this is the proof that the authors of the Indus Valley civilization were Dravidians. 
There are many fatal flaws in this reason. I'll just give a few. Number one, we have no evidence of any connection between the Brahuis and the Indus civilization. In their culture, material culture, there is no evidence. So, there should be some connection with the Indus Valley culture artifacts. Number two, we are analyzing the language today. We don't know what it was 5,000 years ago. Number three, several linguists, and I will quote only three, Jacques Bloch, French linguist, 1920 in France. Elfenbein, American linguist working in the 1960s. And recently, uh, Hans Heirich Hock, a German linguist working in the United States. The linguists have concluded that Brahui is actually a recent import into Balochistan. It is a migration of from South India into that area dating possibly from the first century before or after Christ. I mean before or after our era. So this Brahmi language is a recent import into the region according to the linguists. They have done this, you know, by extensive linguistic work comparing the evolution of the vocabulary syntax and all that. I am not competent to tell you all this. But the conclusion and whoever is interested, I am prepared to send photocopies of the articles. Uh, their conclusion is, this Brahui language has nothing to do with Indus uh, uh, Valley times. And it is just a recent migration and therefore, we, and don't forget moreover about this Dravidian question. Because as we know, you know, this whole Dravidian thing has been highly politicized in South India. We know that, all of us. And once you get something politicized, you don't have any objectivity, it's over. The simple thing is, the Harappan script does not exist anywhere south of the Narmada. It does not exist, even though a few claims have been made uh, in South India, they have been demolished one after another. And not a single Harappan artifact has been found in South India. So there is, if the Dravidians had been the authors of the Indus Valley civilization and had been driven south, by the incoming Aryans, which is what you still find in a 